0: Our second reading is from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 16. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. The word of the Lord. Well, good morning.
1: It's lovely to be with you, as always. We are going to look this morning at a turning point in Matthew's gospel, Peter's confession of the Christ. Up to this point, Jesus has been an itinerant preacher, feeding the crowds on the side of the hill, healing the sick, teaching the disciples about the kingdom of God. But from here on in, Jesus will turn his face resolutely towards Jerusalem and the cross. And the turning point, the crux, is Peter's confession. But who do you say that I am, Jesus asks. And Peter replies, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And then Jesus goes on to say this, and I tell you, you are Peter. Which, if you're Peter, is not really a surprise, And then he says, and on this rock I will build my church. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. On this rock. And thereby, Jesus sets off 2,000 years of the church arguing. Who or what is the rock? And it's really important. Because... As Jesus heads towards Jerusalem, as he heads towards the cross, he's beginning this process of handing the mission and the movement to his disciples, people like you and me. And we read, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that we must, he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. So Jesus says, that's where I'm headed. And he begins this thing of beginning to empower his disciples for the mission and the movement. It's an amazing example of leadership. So why would Jesus leave us with this conundrum about the basis on which his church is gonna be built, the rock? You see, on one hand, everybody knows. If you are a good Israeli, you know who the rock is. The rock is God. We read the Psalm this morning. I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my deliverer. My God, my rock. In whom I take refuge. <laughs> I don't take refuge in technology. Is that okay? I think it's okay. Is it? Oh, we're good. We're good. Okay. Yes, we read that from Psalm 18. Oh, this is no good. But then, it seems that there's a deliberate play in Jesus' words. Because Peter's name is rock. Petra means little rock. So, is that what Jesus is saying? You, Peter... Now, if you come from a Roman Catholic background, this will be familiar to you because this is the basis on which the Roman Catholic says that's the apostolic succession all the way down to the Pope. Peter is the first, as it were, of the fathers. Now, if you're a Protestant, you're like, I don't like that. So maybe what Jesus means by the rock is it's not Peter himself, It's Peter's confession that is the rock, because isn't that what the church is built on? Where do we get to? Anybody remember where we got lost? Oh yes, Protestants don't like the fact that, uh, you know, maybe Peter's the rock. No, 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 we say it's the confession of Jesus, and uh, so it could be God, which means that's Jesus, or it could be Peter, or it could be the confession, and I'm not going to try and solve that argument for you this morning. And in fact, I'm going to suggest that they all have some validity. What I want to do this morning is locate us in the story, literally, geographically. I'm going to show you some pictures and maps. Now, I have to be honest, I'm not a great fan of what you might call the illustrated lecture. You know the kind of thing? Where a speaker gets up and he doesn't trust you to imagine what it was like when Jesus taught, say, on the Lake of Galilee. So he shows you some pictures so you can just see what it would have been like. And I I, I really don't like that. Perhaps it's just a fault in my stars, but I always find myself thinking about the pictures more than what's going on, because the pictures are usually so bad. I mean, why does Jesus always look like his clothes have been freshly laundered? And his hair is always just beautiful. Is it we don't trust that God might turn up in the body of a Jew who was a carpenter, probably construction worker, and who was an itinerant minister. He probably didn't take a lot of baths. And why, oh why, whenever we get a picture of John the Baptist, does he look like a Rastafarian? Anyway, I'm going to show you some pictures this morning because actually I think the geography of this passage is really important. And it kind of reminds us that the Scripture is not an abstract code pointing to an abstract God. And we just have to kind of decipher the code and then we'll really get God. Most of Scripture is a record of encounters with the reality of God. And the meaning and significance of those encounters often isn't immediately clear. And in fact, in the lifetime of those who encounter, it takes a long time. And here we are thousands of years later, still interpreting and understanding the significance of these encounters. And these encounters are often about expanding our understanding of God. And that's what's going on here with Peter. Peter's confession is an expansion of his understanding of who this rabbi that he's been following is. You're the Christ. And as we look at the reality of the geography of Peter's confession, the place where Jesus has led his disciples to make this confession, I think there's another expansion going on. And it has to do with how the church imagines, how we imagine where Jesus will build his church. And in some sense, I think this scripture is answering the question, what kind of environment, what kind of place, among what kind of people will Jesus build his church? Shall we pray, and then we'll have a little look at this text. So Lord Jesus, this morning, we're praying that as we hear your words, as we listen to your scriptures, that we would ourselves encounter you, the living God, that, Lord, you would not just teach us abstract principles, but we would touch and taste something of the reality of who you are and what you are calling us to be. And We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so when we join the story here in Matthew, Aslan is on the move. Do you believe that God is on the move? Yes. Jesus, as we said, had been spending a lot of time milling around Jerusalem. Can we have the first map? Those squiggly lines are Jesus kind of wandering around doing his itinerant ministry. Now, please, nobody write to me and say, why did he go in circles like that? They were just the best squiggly lines I could find on my graphic application. But he spent most of his time around the Judean countryside, popping up into Samaria occasionally. But when we get to this point, Jesus has suddenly, without explanation, made a bold move. Can we have the next slide? He's heading up here towards Mount Hermon, which was a holy mountain for Israel right on the northern border, but it is Gentile territory. Can we have a picture of, uh, there we are, up there. That's where he's heading up. I don't know if you can just see the little triangle. That's Mount Hermon. And let's have the next picture. This is Mount Hermon. It's an extremely important mountain, even to this day, because it always has snow all year round, and the waters flow from Mount Hermon as it melts. The melt flows down into the Jordan Valley, and it is the source of, for the whole of northern Israel of water. We're heading to Mount Hermon, and what's going to happen on Mount Hermon? Who knows your Bible? The transfiguration. The transfiguration is going to happen on Mount Hermon. But before Mount Hermon, before we get to the transfiguration, we arrive in Caesarea Philippi. Can we have a picture, the next picture? This is the water flowing down from Mount Hermon, and that is a cave. I'm going to tell you a little bit about that. You can just go to the next image. That's where Caesarea Philippi was, a big rock. And the water came directly out of a cave, that cave on the left-hand side where you saw that water. The water used to come out of here. It doesn't come out of anymore. The water table has changed. And that was known as the grave—the uh, cave sorry, of Pan, Pan, the god Pan, and sacrifices would be thrown into the waters that used to be there. There was a temple built in front of it. And this was believed to be the gate of the underworld, of Hades. And when we say Hades, we shouldn't think, ah, you mean hell, in perhaps the way that you and I would imagine it. It It's simply the place of the dead. So this was believed to be, in Caesarea Philippi, this big rock, the gate to Hades, And then all around this rock, with the gate of Hades, we have these niches like that. And in those niches used to be placed images of various deities, various pagan deities. You begin to get a picture of what this place is like. Now, let me add to it. This place was essentially the Las Vegas of its day. Sin City. Are you anybody here from Las Vegas? Have I just offended anybody? If you were Jewish, you wouldn't be seen dead in Caesarea Philippi. If you were a good Jewish boy or girl, no way you're going to Caesarea Philippi. So we have a rock. We have the gates of Hades. We have lots of other claimants to God or deity. And this is Sin City. So let's keep that all in mind now as we begin to look at this dialogue between Jesus and his disciples. You must have been wondering, Jesus, what are we doing here? Why have you brought us to Caesarea Philippi? This is what we read. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? It's the first time he's asked them, who do you think I am? And the disciples kind of fumble around for the answers. And they say, well, you know, uh, some say you're John the Baptist. Remember, John John the Baptist has been killed. Maybe you're the kind of resurrection of John the Baptist. Others say you're Elijah, the great prophet, reincarnation of uh, Elijah or something. Uh, Others say you're Jeremiah, another great prophet of Israel, or, or just one of the prophets. In other words, we're not really sure who you are, or at least other people aren't really sure who you are. And one of the things we don't get from the text is the tone of voice. Are the disciples saying, well, that's what other people say, but they're stupid. We know who you are. Or are they saying, we're not really sure. Let me try this one out on you, Jesus. Are you Elijah? That's what other people say. Are you John the Baptist? Are they searching and seeking? We don't really know. But Jesus turns to them and says, okay, never mind what other people say. The real question is, who do you say I am? And isn't that the heart of evangelism? It doesn't matter what other people say. It doesn't matter what other people think. When you are confronted by the person of Jesus, who do you say I am? And Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God his confession. Now, I don't know if you remember the first time you ever said to anybody, I love you. Do you remember what that was like? Maybe to your significant other, your partner, you say, I love you, and it's the first time you've ever said that. What's happening when you say that, is you are changing the nature of the relationship you have with that person. As you say it, you're not just confessing your feelings or your intentions, you're actually, materially, as long as you get a good response, changing the nature of the relationship you have with that person. When Peter says, when he confesses, you are the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. When he speaks it out, it is changing the nature of his encounter with Jesus. It will never be the same again. And you sense in Jesus the delight in this moment as Peter makes this confession of a new sense of reality, if you will. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon bar Jonah, Simon, son of Jonah. Little hint do you remember who the prophet Jonah was? Jonah was the prophet who refused to go into Gentile territory for their sake, because God was about to smite them. And God asks Jonah, you go and tell the Gentiles so that I won't smite them. And Jonah says, no thanks, they're Gentiles. And here they are in Gentile territory. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Peter, you didn't figure this out on your own. If you believe in Jesus this morning, you didn't figure it out on your own. It was God himself who revealed that to you. But here's the thing. Peter is confessing Jesus as Messiah, as the Christ, But we're pretty sure that Peter hasn't really fully understood himself what that means. Because only a few sentences later, when Jesus says, and I'm off to the cross now, now that you guys have got it, now that I can hand the mission and the movement over to you or begin that process, I'm heading off to the cross, and Peter says, Oh no, you're the Messiah, you're the Christ, you're Israel's Savior, you can't possibly go and die. And do you remember what Jesus' response was? Get behind me, Satan. And Peter goes from hero to zero. You see, at this point in time, Jesus' confession of the Christ was probably primarily a political one. The Messiah that Israel expected was going to be a political savior with a small P and a big P who would save Israel From Rome and Roman oppression, and the Caesar in whose city by namesake they are now standing. And who is the other claimant contemporary to Jesus for Son of God? Caesar. Caesar said, Son of God. And Peter says, No, this is the Son of God. This is the one in whom we have hoped. This is the one who is going to save Israel. And Jesus really doesn't seem too worried that Peter's confession is only the dawning realization of who Jesus is. And I often find my, you know, think to myself that as the church, if there are people in our midst who are stumbling towards Jesus, could we be okay with the fact that they haven't fully understood? The fact that they're just a little bit interested in knowing who Jesus is, is enough of a start. They don't have to get the whole picture straight away. But even with this imperfect understanding, Jesus now starts the process of entrusting his mission to these hapless disciples, people like you and me. And he says this, and I tell you, you are Peter, you're the little rock, and on this rock, I will build my church. And the gates of hell, remember, the rock, gates of Hades, Caesarea Philippi, on this rock, And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And we've looked briefly at some of the theories about who the rock is. Is it Peter? Is it Peter's confession? Is it Jesus? Jesus, why don't you make things simple and clear? You're about to entrust the whole movement to this group of rabbley group of disciples and give them incredible authority, just as he's given authority to you and me. He says, I will give you, actually the you is singular. That might point to it is Peter, if you're a Roman Catholic. The keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Incredible authority is about to be handed over to these disciples. And this playful thing on this word rock. I wonder if it's more that Jesus, rather than trying to lay it out for us, is inviting us to wonder, how is this church going to be built? I mean, in a way, isn't it all of the various interpretations of rock? It needs leaders. It needs confession of Christ. And of course, underpinning the whole thing, we need Jesus. We need God. The church is always founded on God. But my question for this morning, which I really started with, and I want to come back to now, is I'm wondering about whatever the rock is, Whatever the rock on which Jesus is going to build the church, why does he do it in Caesarea Philippi? Why has he brought these disciples on a journey to Caesarea Philippi? Why invite the confession of Jesus there? Come with me in your imagination. You followed a teacher for a while. Perhaps you're beginning to hope he's Israel's Messiah, but you haven't dared say it. He's taken you places you never thought you'd go into Samaria. And now, like Frodo and Samwise, you traveled further out from the Shire than you've ever been before to Sin City, to Caesarea Philippi. And just as you're wondering why the Master has led you there, Jesus says and asks this pertinent question Who do you say I am? You know, you never forget where you first confess your love for your partner. You. I remember exactly where it was or I should say where I first proposed to my wife we'd been dating for a week that was enough we had known each other for five years beforehand just to say and really almost the first conversation we'd ever had was about getting married but then we had a week of arguing and I decided the whole thing was a bad idea and I got on my bike in South London and sidled up into central London where she worked. And as I arrived and she was standing waiting for me, I looked across and I thought, I'd gone to break up with her. And I looked across and saw her standing there and I thought, nope, I've got a better idea, I'll marry her. (laughs) And um, so I took her and we went down into a little area of London, there's a little London's full of parks in Green Park. And there I asked her, you never forget, I know exactly where that was. I could walk there all these years later and say it was just about here under this tree or close to that tree. I am sure that Peter never forgot where he was when he confessed the Christ. Is it possible that Jesus here is expanding in this encounter their imagination of where he is going to build his church with these Good Jewish boys, mostly. You see, us religious people, and I'm one of them, we always have this instinct to move away from dirty things, don't we? We begin to get an idea of holiness and a holy God. We become aware of sin. God does that. We become more aware of sin in ourselves, but also in the world. And our instinct is to withdraw from it, to move away. At Jesus' time, there was a whole movement called the Essenes, and the Essenes had retreated into the desert because Israel was such a mess that they retreated to the desert to wait for the kingdom of God to come. There's always that movement going on. You'll see it today as the world looks messier than it ever does, has before, because that's always what it feels like when you live in it. There's always this movement, but Jesus seems to do the opposite. Jesus, to me, seems to be saying here, no, my ecclesia, my church, is going to be built right next to the gates of hell, right amongst all the other claimants to divinity, right in the face of the powers and the rulers, the Caesars of this world. This is where my church will be built. Didn't Jesus say, those who are well have no need of a physician. They don't need me. But those who are sick, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. I'll leave you with this thought, that as CCV, as Christ Church Vienna, goes on dreaming and wondering about where you're supposed to be, you think about buildings, and more importantly than buildings, about building Jesus' church. It seems to me our task is always to follow Jesus to Caesarea Philippi, because that's where he's going. He's got off to Sin City, and it's in Sin City, surrounded by all the things that shouldn't be, that's where Jesus is going to build his church. Among the false gods, right in the face of the powers of this world, right up against the gates of Hades, which will not overcome. And if we will go there, that's where we'll find Jesus building his church. Would you pray with me? Father, I want to thank you this morning for Christ Church Vienna and the amazing journey that this body of people already represent. I've been really grateful to have been a, a very tiny part of it. And Lord I'm praying for Christ Church Vienna that as as you continue to wonder and listen and discern and ask questions about where you are being called to in order to discover Jesus building his church that, Lord, I pray that even if there is some degree of confusion, that, Lord, in the midst of that confusion, we will keep our eyes focused on you and confess the Christ, Jesus. You are the Messiah. You are Lord. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.